0: The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their savior, center, and source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Beth Coppage. Turn to First Peter. Have you heard that before? <laughs> yeah, 1 Peter 3, 13. And, I, and, and some of this is so fresh, it's from early this morning, isn't this? And I just we're going to have to ask Jesus just to teach it because some of it I'm just learning. I just saw it a couple hours ago. <laughs> so let's just ask him to come and teach it for us. But it's so good. I just got so excited I can hardly stand it. And at the beginning of the week I said, Oh, Lord. What will you ever do with this passage of scripture? This is a very hard passage of scripture, and th- for those of you that are doing your homework—and so many of you are—you get the A award. That yesterday James said, "What does 3:19 mean?" And I said, "Well, but if you've read your commentaries or you've labored over that, no one's quite sure what it means. It's one of the most obscure passages in scripture." But I think he's still giving us something for this morning. Now, I'd like to start back in a way of review where we were last week. But, and then I want to pray. We're going to start in three, eight. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Do not return evil for evil or reviling or abusive talk for abusive talk. But on the contrary, bless. Know that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. How many of us want to love life and see good days? The key ingredient for a happy life. Refrain your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But, key verse, our verse... Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few That is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Amen and amen. Now, someone sent me, Judy Metcalf sent me. I love how the body works. Judy Metcalf sent me this from the message. This is 8 through 12. Are you ready? Be agreeable. Be sympathetic. Be loving. Be compassionate. Be humble. That goes for all of you. No exceptions. No retaliation. No sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless. That's your job, to bless You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. Whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, here's what you must do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. God looks on this with approval, listening and responding well to what he's asked. But he turns his back on those who do evil. That's First Peter three eight through twelve from the message. Let's pray, dear Jesus. We just feel so excited this morning about what you have for us, and Jesus, we just are wait in expectation. Lord, I just thank you for the beautiful power of your living word to cleanse, heal, put back together, heal fragmentation, and set us free. Lord, you can set us free inside out. It's not something that has to be done outside in. Jesus, our mind, our heart, our souls, our bodies, and our spirits. Jesus, you are the great freedom giver. Now, Lord, we just ask today as sisters, we just meet at your feet. Would you just come? And would you just break open by your sweet Holy Spirit the power of this word so that when we're finished today, all of us know we have been with you. And, Lord, we will never be the same. Pull back the veil of our eyes. Pull back our stuffed ears. Unstop them. Soften our hearts so that the realities of truth could could enter into our reality and that, Lord, you might set your people free. And Jesus... We just love you today, and we just thank you for your presence with us. Now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And Jesus, create in me and create in us clean hearts, so that, Lord, nothing might block the flow of thy spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what came to me this morning. I just feel so excited. And i we're just going to trust that Jesus will communicate to us. Let's start. Last week, remember, we looked at in what I just read, how you and I are supposed to live. The first, chap- first part of 1 Peter is about my relationship to a holy God. Key verse, just as he has called you as holy, so be holy in all you do. First Peter 1:15 and 16 so that if you and I are to relate to a holy God we must be a holy people and so the first chapters from 1 to 2:10 talk about our relationship to a holy God and that we must surrender and belong to him and let him clean our hearts out every single cubicle every closet every space so we're all his and that Jesus is the passion of our life That's what holiness of heart is about. But then the word is very practical, because it's one thing to say, well, my relationship with God is right, but God says, wait a minute, if it's right with me, it should be fleshing itself out in the nitty-gritty of my relationships. And so the rest of the book deals with that. And so... There are two things that if you and I are going to live a life that reflects his nature and character, which is holiness, there are two things that are going to be characteristics of your life and mine. And there are two things that Americans love. The first one is what we've been studying for the past two weeks. What is it called? Submission. The name of the game, if we're going to reflect his character, is submission. Submission. And who was our example in submission? Jesus himself, who willingly lay, gave his life and submitted to the will of the Father that you and I might be free. Okay, then he says, if that isn't bad enough, and jars the flesh enough, and the self-love not life enough, the next name of the game, if you and I are going to go through to the deeper things of God and to know him, is he says, if you're going to live like this, you are going to know something about suffering. So First Peter deals with the realities of Christ-like people in a broken, fallen, wicked, sinful, evil world. And I love it. And then, and Peter knows something about this. And once again, his example in suffering is none other than whom? Jesus Christ. And he speaks about it very intimately. Why would Peter speak about the sufferings of Christ so intimately? Because he was an on-spot observer. He was right there. So it wasn't one thing for us to picture in our mind what it cost Christ to die on the cross, or what it cost him to be brutalized beforehand, or to wear a crown of thorns for you and I. It was one thing for us to just picture it in our mind. It is another thing. Peter was right there. So the realities of what it cost Jesus Christ to redeem you and I were very real in the heart of this apostle. And you you and I can sense some of that pathos here. So he starts, and he says, let me tell you, this is the way you're to live, and these are some of the characteristics. And he said, if you live this way, so that when you are reviled and talked to abusively, you don't respond in kind, when you are, are, um, 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 evil is done against you, and you are misused and not appreciated, evil doesn't flow out of you, but blessing... And more blessing, and then more blessing. And he said, if you live like this, your tongue is clean. Evil doesn't come out of your tongue. You are not deceitful, and I am not deceitful. We are not manipulative. He says... When you and I begin to live like this, so we pursue peace and we stop pursuing our own agenda and begin to do what's right instead of doing what we want to to get our own rights. He said, when you and I begin to live like this, we would think that all would go well. But it does not happen that way. Look at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if... You become followers of what is good because you think if you and I are living with a clean heart and clean life, we're pursuing peace, we're having compassion, we're tender-hearted, we're not fighting for our rights, surely everyone should love us and appreciate us. And the exact opposite seems to happen because we are marching to a different drummer and so we are walking upstream away from the world. And so pressures come from the outside and a non-Christian world says, what is this? And it makes a non-Christian world uncomfortable and they do not know what to do with it. And the only thing they know to do is just cause pain and suffering for those that walk with God. Now, this comes in many forms. Peter was preparing here the Christians who were going to suffer under incredible persecution under Domitian and under Nero, where they were the lights at the garden party and were literally burned alive. Now, you and I don't face those kind of pressures today, but I think there's some others that we face. Now, if you and I suffer for doing what's right, Now I wanted to. I read this this week about OMS missionary uh, Florence Cavender, who was in Colombia, South America, for many years. Some of you know her, and she was talking about uh, when they were starting the work in in Colombia, that two of their seminary students went out to witness in a town on the river, and while they were there, um, they went and they passed out a few tracts. And then they, it was a holiday, and so they felt the crowd was uneasy. So they said, what we'll do is go to our room in the hotel, we'll rest, we'll pray, and prepare to start doing some more evangelism tomorrow. But in those few tracks that they had an opportunity to pass out, they enraged the people. And before they knew it, these two Colombian Christians... Were, were te- their door was knocked down they were beat up in their room they were thrown down the stairs they were hauled out into the streets they were beat up some more one of them was got broke away and fled for his life and fell into a deep pit and the people all ran around him but didn't find him and after they left he staggered out of the pit and walked a day and a half to get to Medellin and got there and was sobbing uncontrollably and was absolutely in shock from what he'd gone through. But the other one, they beat him up. They kept beating him up. They took him to a cliff, knocked him over. He landed on sand. He wasn't dead, so they came down the cliff, beat him some more. He jumped into the river. Then he was dying, got to the other side, and they beat him some more. And as he lay there, knowing he was going to God, he kept saying over and over and over, Jesus save me. Jesus have mercy. Jesus forgive them. And just like Stephen on the banks of that river, he said, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. And in that moment, as he's drifting into unconsciousness, the the Lord the Lord moved in and those Columbians said, What are we doing? What did he do to us? He did nothing. So they picked him up, took him back to the same hotel room, and then called and Uncle Ben Pearson and a doctor came to take him home. But his response to suffering was so Christ-like as they abused him and reviled him and, and kicked him and beat him. He only blessed and blessed and blessed that while the doctor tried to piece him back together... The missionary Uncle Ben Pearson, great Christian statesman, could not handle the crowds of Colombians that came and said, What is there in your religion that makes a man face death and persecution like that? And so what it cost in his physical body of one believer opened up a whole town to the gospel in a way they had not anticipated. Now, some of you sitting in this room know exactly what I mean because you have been the brunt of that kind of persecution. You know it. You've experienced it firsthand. Chantel shared some of it last, last, end of last semester with us. It is not an isolated incident. But so often in our life in America, that is not the persecution you and I face. It doesn't mean that there won't be a day that that does not come to us. But that is the persecution of what these people were facing. And he said, if you and I are going to be what we are supposed to be, and we begin to say, Lord, I want to make you Lord in my life and heart, and begin to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and submit to one another in Calvary love, you and I will run upstream and there will be a price to pay. Now, that price is not always in that kind of graphic way, but it may be. And the question is, are we ready? Has God done something in your heart and mind to make the gospel that real in our lives that we would literally be willing to lay down our lives? But then the next question he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats and their troubles. Don't be afraid of them. Because there is something in them that they can hurt our physical body where we suffer once. Or we keep on suffering, but it is transitory, and what is coming is eternal. And you and I need to remember how this whole passage started. We are sojourners, and we are pilgrims. And eternity is in view, and we are blessed because we suffer for Jesus' sake. And not only that, but as we go, we face it, and the troubles and the threats come, we are not to be afraid because Jesus has the last word. The end of this chapter emphasizes that. But how do we live like that? How can we pay that kind of price? There's no way you and I can. There's no way. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Set apart the way it's worded in NIV. That's a key phrase. There's no way we can live like that unless there came there comes in our hearts a death to our a death to our manipulation and control a death to our desire to have it my way no matter what it costs or who I hurt and Jesus says you want the only way you can live so you can submit and you're willing to suffer for my name's sake and pay the price for me is that you let me sanctify your heart so that I am God in your life and there is no other The Lord your God. And so that when it happens that you do right and others notice, which they always do, because it's not the norm for the world in which we live, that people will ask, what has happened in your life? Why do you respond that way? And you and I have an opportunity, even as Ben Pearson had an opportunity for that Colombian brother to share what Jesus had done and the reason for his ability to cope in that kind of way with persecution. Now, I want to apply this, ask the Lord to help us apply it a little more to where we are in America today. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and reverence. Remember last year we spoke of Jamie Capen today, who's a missionary in Korea. Remember last year when she shared in our Bible study about how she was in Sears? And she said she was buying um, some clothes and she's very good with math. And so she realized she had gotten five things and the clerk had i have been busy, and i only run up four of them. And in her mind, she said, I've been thinking about integrity in the inner heart. We talked about last week. And she said, as I was standing there, she said, in days gone past, missionary or not, she said, I would have thought, well, thank you, Lord. You just saved me $12 on that pair of pants. But she said, there was a pricking in my heart. And I thought, he, I owe him more money. So as he figured up the bill, she looked at him and she said, you will not understand this, and I think God gave her these words, but I am trying to work on integrity in my inner heart between God and myself. And she said, you have just cheated yourself out of twelve ninety nine. You never looked, thought, saw these pants. And the guy was in a flurry. He said, well, I don't think so figured it up and there was another clerk there and she was dumbfounded and they figured it up and he looked at her and he said you're absolutely right and I just thank you so much and thank you and the other girl said thank you and she said and Jamie said thank you Jesus you're showing me truth in the inner part but are those normal reactions no they're not and so when she came back to get another thing That same clerk was there, and he looked at her, and he said, Lady, are you from Asbury? And she said, Well, my husband's going to the seminary. And he said, You know, I'm a brand-new Christian from U.K. And he said, I just can't believe you did that. He said, I wonder if maybe God wants me to go to Asbury so I could learn how to live like that exact case in point but a little subtle nuance where she did what was right not was it what was in her best interest or padded her pocket with 1288 more and you know she could have used it but she did what it was right and it caused a whole stir in the Sears department at, in the Sears store because she began to have integrity in the inner part in the inner heart. Then it says here, a meek and quiet spirit. Remember that's what it said, our husbands will be won by, our meek and quiet spirit, or our gentle and quiet spirit. I have been doing some research on that (laughs) because I need it so badly. Well, I wasn't ready last week, and I'm still not altogether ready, but listen to what I'm beginning to learn. Steve Stratton, and they did a thrift kind of book at the college on holy love. Steve Stratton has an article in it on meekness. And I got a hold of a copy of that article. And he talks about what meekness is in an age of power politics. We talked a little bit about it last week. I want to see if God can help us apply this. In the Sermon on the Mount... Remember when Jesus, the devil came to Jesus. And Jesus and said, after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, You have legitimate needs here. You're hungry. Just turn these stones into bread. No one will know. You're all alone here in the middle of the desert. And, and just turn these into bread. It's a legitimate need. It doesn't matter how you meet it. Turn them into bread. And Jesus quotes scripture and says, Man shall not live by bread alone. And do you know what? I think God is saying that you and I will stand for right when we begin to not look to ourselves to get legitimate needs met. We talked about it some last week. But where you and I begin to trust God to meet legitimate needs in our heart that are going unmet and that our comfort is at a lower level on our totem pole and in our value system than our character. Now, I didn't know how to illustrate that, but this morning I stopped for a cup of coffee with my daughter, Cricket, and she gave me three illustrations. She remembered the novel Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. She remembered... How in that she runs away with her lover. And then she begins to realize that there's separation in their spirits. And they've been so close. And then there's separation. And she's panicked. She's panicked. Because they've been together. And now she's alone. And there's something in our hearts that does not want to be alone. We don't we want to be safe and secure, and we want someone with skin on. So Anna Karenina panics, and so she tries every way she can to pull him back into relationship with her, so she is not alone. She manipulates. She controls. She connives. She contrives. And then in the ultimate manipulation, she To make him feel sorry for the distance that keeps growing and growing, she ends up committing suicide. And he realizes without a shadow of a doubt what she has done, and the only thing it produces in his heart for Anna is loathing, odium, and contempt. She sought to meet her own needs. And Tolstoy makes a whole novel out of that, of a woman desperate to get, I need to be safe and secure, and I'm latching on to you, and you will make me safe and secure, and if I don't get my own way, you'll be sorry, and she does it with threats. And Scripture says right here, don't be afraid and don't threaten. Let me take care of you, Jesus says. You are never alone. I died that you would never be alone. And I thought, Jesus, how many times has Beth Coppage met her own needs or tried to? And every time, all it's produced is alienation and isolation and more fear. And I've gotten into a vicious cycle. Are you producing... Are you trying to meet legitimate needs for intimacy? Legitimate needs for fellowship? Legitimate needs in your own life? Do you know the only one that can meet them is one called Jesus, crucified, living, resurrected today? And he says, will you submit to me? Because any way you and I try to meet them will be a dead end street as dead as Anna Meekness is when she like Jesus, he did not meet his own needs, but he, he submitted his needs to the Father to let God meet them on his behalf. The next thing meekness says, remember from the Sermon on the Mount, he believed God despite the circumstances. And Satan says, comes to Jesus and says, you want to start your ministry on earth? I have a way for you. Jump from this pinnacle. Doesn't Scripture say the angels protect you? And and look what... You'll have a crowd from here to kingdom come to see this man that jumps off this pinnacle and doesn't die. You could use the supernatural element. You could really go gung-ho. And Jesus says, No, I am not going to do God's work in my way, and I'm not going to use the spe- spectacular... or or anything else, I am going to wait on God. And as he does that, and he submits his circumstances to the will of God, he, he believes God to use his circumstances for his glory, and he waits God's time. He believes God's goodness despite what the circumstances say, and he was in a desert. And the circumstances maybe in your life The grass is greener on the other side of the fence Another American novel this time Scarlet O'Hare In Gone with the Wind She had everything Rhett Buckler was rich He was tall, dark, and handsome For a while he adored her And what happens? She's never happy She always wants the other man She wants Ashley, somebody else's husband. The grass is always greener on the other side, and she is never happy with where she is. And do you know what? There's something in your heart, in my heart, that says, I don't like these circumstances God's put me in. I don't want to be in Wilmore. I don't want three children. I wanted two. I don't like the husband I've got. I'd like one that's tall, dark, and handsome. I'm tired of being poor. I don't like the calling that we have. I just wish I were there. If only I'd married so-and-so. If only I'd done such-and-such. If only. And we live our whole life just like a Scarlet O'Hare. And one day the rat walks out, or one day the bottom falls out, and what happens we say, why didn't I realize what God had done for me and given to me? And it is too late. It is once again one of the devil's lies. Trust me, meet your own needs. Trust me. Do it yourself. Trust me, you're not happy in these circumstances. What a mean God you've got, you're in the backside of the desert. But if you and I will just hold on to him and say, Yes, I'm in a wilderness now, but Jesus has not forgotten me no matter where I am. He is going to use me for his good, my good, and his glory. And you just keep believing and believing and believing and believing. And there will be a day that God will come through for you. And you will say, Jesus, praise you, I didn't bail out 25 years ago. Praise you, I did it your way. Praise you, I didn't leave. And I don't know, you may be in an unhappy marriage today. You may have children that are driving you crazy. You may think, I can't live in this town another day. You and I need to get on our prayer bones and say, Jesus Christ, give me a godly contentment with the things that you placed in my life. And let me receive them as opportunities for you to create meekness inside my heart. Because anything else damns us. And then the next thing. Expectations. Well, this isn't what I expected. This man isn't how I expected. He needs to be different. He needs... Why, I... Lord, Lord, it needs... And so we begin to lay... You think, I never lived up to my daddy's expectations... I never lived up to my mother's expectations. I never lived up to my grandmother's expectations. And all our lives we spend spent trying to live up to expectations, and we are unable to. And then you say, I'm not going to do that in my children's life. And unless the blood of Jesus Christ has come upon those expectations, and you have submitted to him, lock, stock, and barrel, the very thing you hate will pass on to those precious ones that go around your table every single day. You and I need to come to a place of total surrender. Peter says the only way is entire surrender. So that you and I submit to Jesus Christ. Every other Lord in life is bondage and dams. And it not only does it for you and me, it does it for all our children yet to come. And God is crying out today. And I think he put words on things. I've said some of this is repeat. But it's like he's unfolding that I couldn't get it all together. What about my expectations? And you know the novel she gave from that? It's called Edith. Um, how did she even pronounce it? E-D-I-T-H-A. Editha. By Holmes. And she said that she had a, a fiancé and she lived in a fairy tale Cinderella, <laughs> Anne of Green Gables world. This young woman. And she felt it was romantic to go to war. So the man that she loved, she, lo- she said, well, if you're really a man, you'll go to war. Well, he didn't want to go to war. He didn't need to go to war. He, was, he didn't believe in war. But, she, but because of her expectations, he, the young man goes to war. And then he dies. And, and she mourns and goes through all the make-believe She lives in a bubble of absolute unreality that is made up so many times in your life and in my life of soap operas on an afternoon, of novels that we cannot let go of, of make-believe experiences so that a real life flesh fresh-and-blood man that God gives us that leaves his socks on the floor but feeds us and takes care of us and gives us a real hug and not one that's paper, that we can't take that. We choose the artificial, the make-believe, instead of the reality and the truth of life. And so she encounters her fiancé's mother. And the mother said, you killed him. You sent him off to war, and he did it for your expectations. And now he's dead. You never countered on that, did you? And you and I need to come to the place where we give every expectation we ever had to Jesus Christ. And we let him cleanse and purify our hearts so that they are under the blood. Because what will happen is the expectations we put on those we love can kill them. As they seek to try to please and try to please and try to please and can't ever get there. Because we don't live where life is real. We're living in bubble and we need to ask god to put those books that we're reading and to cut off that tv and to sit down and say god let truth penetrate into who i am so that i do not hurt those around me that you have given to me and then the last thing he says he says he said to jesus the devil he said if you you, you came to save the world i don't have any problem with that you could save the world if you want to jesus just just make a few concessions to me. After all, I'm the prince of the world. And if you'll just bow down here, no one will ever know it. And you can have the whole world, and you won't have any hassle at all, and you won't have a cross. You won't have a cross. And you can still save it if you want. And the devil will come to you, and they will say, I don't care if you're religious. I mean, he got the scribes and Pharisees. They were the ones that killed Jesus. He didn't mind if we're religious. He says you don't. It doesn't matter if you're religious. You can go to church every Sunday. I I have lots of people in churches. It doesn't. That doesn't bother me too much. But he said you, if you begin to take and begin to have integrity in the inner heart, if you begin to walk with God, and if you begin to start going to prayer meeting like Tuesday morning, so you know what day you'll see everything you need to clean in your house Tuesday morning. You know what day you'll feel you need to spend quality time with your children? Tuesday morning. You know what day you'll think, oh, I just can't do that. I'm too busy. You know what day? It'll be the day of prayer or early morning prayer or Bible study. Well, I'm just too busy. I can't come or I can't stay for a small group because I've got to make supper. And I, I have to, and you'll need to make the best supper you ever need to make Wednesday, so you can't get to small group or you can't get to Bible study. You just watch the devil, and so that, and you get ready to have revival meetings in your church. You will see every cobweb you ever saw that's ever existed in the world, and you'll think I can't go to where God's working because look, I've got all this housework to do, I've got all these bills to pay, I'm just too busy, God. And you know. The devil will say, you want me to be, first of all, a good wife and a good mother. And that's true. And you can be religious, just don't be a fanatic. You can be religious, but don't just carry this too far. Have you heard those very words? Watch him, because what he's after is to, to just sabotage us so that we do not get with other women that have a white, hot heart for God. And he says, those who honor me, all I will honor. And if you begin to make those priorities priorities for God, you will begin to see that you get that house cleaner than you ever did. You will begin to see that you don't spend three hours on your checkbook. He brings it together in 45 minutes when you need to balance it. You'll begin to bump into people that you were supposed to call, and you'll be at IGA, and you'll see four people that you should have called, and in 15 minutes, God has worked for you, and you've seen all four. You begin to enter into the dynamic of the supernatural where God works for you, and you put God's business the way it's supposed to be. God will work on your behalf. Now, that doesn't mean that it's all extra ministry, but it means where you make soul time and you don't let anything get in the way of your soul time. Soul time alone with him and soul time alone with others. And that means that then God frees you. So when you sit down with that baby, it's time you're supposed to sit down. When you rock that baby, it's every bit as holy as if you were out preaching the gospel. God begins to order your priorities and you become honed into the things of God. A couple weeks ago in our Tuesday prayer time, Tammy gave an illustration, and I asked her if I could use it. She said her mother, "It's about her mother." and she said she was she and her husband were married and, and they were both Christians. but during that time, after they were first newly married, her daddy kind of just got away from the Lord and stopped going to church. Well her little mother just kept going. And going. She went Sunday morning, Sunday night, in between, and she kept going to church even though he wasn't coming. But after a while, it's lonesome to go to church all by yourself. After a while, you long for unity and intimacy with the one you're married to. And after a while, she just thought, maybe I'll win in better if I just stay home and I'm not quite as fanatical so she began to skip and it's hard to take two kids it is so she began to skip Sunday, Sunday night and began to skip Wednesday night and then occasionally began to skip Sunday morning just to sleep in just to be available for him and one day uh, her preacher came and this is where the sensitivity of the shepherd I love her preacher came and sat down with this young wife and said, Linda, let me tell you, he said he can influence you or God can use you to influence him. And there is a higher priority in your life than your marriage. And it is your relationship to Jesus Christ. And you need to do everything you can do to keep your heart, your heart, white hot for God and he said the very things you think you're going to save husbands and children if you put them ahead of Jesus the possibilities are very great you will lose them only Jesus can keep them safe and it's in your obedience to him and she cried and they prayed and she began to go back to church all alone Take the two kids. Sunday morning, Sunday night prayer meeting. Not only that, she started a five-day Bible club in her backyard and had the courage to do it with no one, nobody. And during that five-day Bible club, who found Jesus? Tammy, her own little girl. And she kept going back and f- kept going, kept seeking Jesus, kept reaching out. It wasn't too long till one Sunday, Her daddy said, wait a minute, her husband said, I think I'd like to just go to church with you. And he not only went to church, he went to the altar, and he got his heart right with God, and God went to the altar, and God not only brought him back to him, but he called him into the ministry, and he's been an alliance pastor for years and years and years. And do you know what? It was a wife that held on to Jesus when her husband was not in, in exact sync with her. And not only was her f- husband saved and called to preach and has served Jesus for years, but her children were saved as well. And what is God saying? He is saying the highest priority is to sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord in our lives. And let him meet the needs of our lives and let him become our best friend and let him become the one that works on our behalf. Then then at the end, he gives the example in the next part of Noah. Remember, he gives the example of Jesus in 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. What he suffered, Jesus suffered for us, was redemptive. If you and I are willing to take up the cross and follow Jesus, even if it's costly and inconvenient, do you know what will happen? It will be redemptive in your life In the lives of your loved one, in the lives of your family, in the lives of others you do not know, the end is not yet, it is in our obedience and our willingness to take up the cross that God is able to bring a redemption. Jesus is our example. There is no suffering given to Jesus experienced that God cannot use redemptively. And then he gives the example of Noah. Noah. And I've reread Noah's life <laughs> this week, and Noah was willing to stand alone. It was a violent, corrupt age. He was just. He was perfect in his generation, and he walked with God. If God can God count on us in our generation? Is there? And he was one. And while he and God said, "I want you to build an ark." This it, it's so corrupt, I'm going to have to bring judgment in 120 years he built that ark and he preached the gospel. And how many converts did Noah have after 120 years? Except one little wife and three sons and three daughters-in-law. His family. They go into the ark and God takes the obedience and faithfulness of one man, he gives him his family and he uses him as an agent of redemption for the whole world or you and I wouldn't be here and do you know what and God is pleased with him and when he gets out of the ark what does he do He the first altar Noah builds an appreciation for God's mercy on him and an appreciation for what he did But do you know that you and I may be in a position where you think, I have been faithful, I have been faithful. It's not quite 120 years, but I have been faithful. It seems like it. And will there be any end to this? And it may seem that our lives are not fruitful. But the end is not yet. And Noah hung in there with God, and God used him. And the whole human race was saved because God found one man. And a man who brought his family. But do you know what? I hate to read the end of Noah's story. It brings me grief and pain. After all God did in his life. He gets out. He worships him. The rainbow covenant is established. And then he plants a vineyard. Anything more innocent than planting a garden? No. Anything more wholesome? No. Anything more necessary? No, if that's what you're living on. But then he takes the fruit of the vine and he becomes so drunk that he's he's naked, he's uncovered. And his sons see him in that momentary weakness. And Canaan sins against his father. A curse falls on one of his sons. And what started out so good? In one broken moment, one moment of indiscretion, we have a whole broken part of the people that God had wanted to use and save. And I think there's some of us that have walked with God, some of us for a very long time. Some of us have known him for a long, long time. And God's used us. And not to the dimension he used, no. We've been faithful. We've shared. We've stood up. We've been honest. We've witnessed for him, and God's used us. But there can come a moment of indiscretion where we take one little thing, such as grapes in a vineyard, and we take them, and we misuse them, and in that moment of indiscretion, sin comes in, and it not only hurts Noah, but the main hurt is in Noah. The wind that was sown in Noah weeps a whirlwind in Canaan and in his sons. And that is why Scripture deals over and over and over again that you and I must get rid of sin. And you and I need to guard our hearts morning, noon, and night that the evil one cannot come in. And after a great victory for God, our work be sabotaged and everything we've given our lives to be sabotaged. We need to seek God's face daily. We need to get with other people and be open and vulnerable and when we and pray. We need to have accountability one another to say, I don't think you're putting your efforts in the right place. We need to leave, let the hidden places of our heart be exposed to the eternal God and walk in obedience and submission so that there is not sin crouching at the gate that will come to destroy not only your life, but the lives of everybody you care for. God is calling us today. And he said it doesn't have to be like this because how does it say... Jesus Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers having been made subject to him. And all we have to do is say, Jesus Christ, have mercy. Jesus, help me. Jesus, hold me steady in this difficult time. Jesus, let me seek my fulfillment in you. Jesus, let me get my clean clean heart from you. Jesus, give me strength to throw out cigarettes. Give me strength to throw out liquor. Give me strength to throw out magazines. Give me strength to break the TV if I need to. Jesus, just make me a woman with a white, hot heart, with one that's on fire for God. And the only one that can do that and the only one that can deal with sin is Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, the one who's crucified, risen, and coming again. And is say, Lord of your life today? Are you willing to be a Noah and stand up? But don't be a Noah that ends up like Noah did. Aren't there some of us who say, God, please let us go the long haul so that all the way from the beginning to the end, Lord, out of our lives, knowing it's only Jesus, only Jesus... Only Jesus. And scripture says, take heed lest you fall. That's why we need one another. That's why we need Bible study. That's why we need corporate prayer. That's why we need time alone with God. Because we think we've got it all together in the moment. We're blindsided. And we're blindsided by the devil at a point of legitimate need. We're blindsided when we want to work for God and God slow, so we move into our own flesh. We're blindsided when we don't trust God with our circumstances and we get unhappy. We're blindsided when we tend to manipulate people instead of letting God do the work in their lives and just getting our lives in obedience to Him. Oh, Jesus, help us. Oh, Jesus, meet us. And this week, I got got this yesterday, and I'd like to close with this. You've been patient. This is another man who is willing to stand up. And I think God is laying this on our hearts to make us women of the white hot heart. Women with the inner beauty of a heart that's clean. And then I think God's given us a job to do. This is what um, Tim Philpot presented to the Senate on January 22nd. And some of the same things we've been talking about where we put our own self-interest in front of what is right. And this is what we've done as a nation. Mr. President, I don't want to make this a religious sermon. I will try not to do that, but there are two biblical figures. This is before the Kentucky Senate. There are two biblical figures worth mentioning today. One is the character called Ezekiel from several thousand years ago, who was like the members of this body, a leader in this society. He was the equivalent, you might say, of a senator. And he was told by God himself, do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are rebellious. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or whether they fail to listen, for they are rebellious. He said, you son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words, do not be afraid. And I am not talking about anyone in particular here, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. We do indeed live among scorpions, and what do scorpions look like? Many of my conservative political friends contend that today's scorpions are the ACLU, the media, the homosexual lobby, maybe the president himself, and on and on. And actually there are times that I have agreed with them. But there are other scorpions that bother me just as much. Real scorpions are bug-like animals that spend their lives protecting themselves and caring for themselves. The scorpions in Ezekiel include any people or groups that ultimately care more about themselves than others. This selfish crowd of scorpions is symbolized around this body that I have been a part of for five years i love and appreciate most lobbyists that i meet here yet when you stop and think about what lobbyists are and what they do i have been guilty of the same thing myself 99 percent of the people that try to persuade us on legislation are there for one reason and that one reason has to do with money it has to do with selfish interests they are there representing their pocketbooks an example was kentucky in 94 and in 96 I can say this because I am a senator that a proposal and an amendment to get rid of a provider tax, for instance. Over my strong objection, we passed a 2% tax on doctors' gross income. I was against that, but I was getting calls and letters galore from doctors, and even though I agreed with their position politically, I finally got tired of it, and I asked one of the physicians that called me who I knew was pro-life, I said, why haven't I heard from you with regard to unborn babies? Why haven't I heard from you with regard to women who are being destroyed in abortion clinics? Why haven't I heard from you with regard to the women who are being uh, destroyed? Why is the first phone call I ever get from you is where your taxes are going to be 2% higher? A pretty good question, I would say, for every single person that comes near this legislation. And, of course, I see it today in my law practice. Clients come in every day asking me to help them with some problem that has to do with money. We do indeed live among scorpions. Those are people that care more about themselves than they do others. And now we live in a political climate. We recall ninety two when the President was reacted by saying repeatedly, "It's the economy, stupid." And I'm not sure who he was talking about. He said it's the economy, it's the economy. He was smart enough from a political standpoint to stay off of moral issues. Don't get off on right and wrong. Stick to money. Stick to the money issues. And now in' 96 I am a little disgusted that the Republicans aren't much better. Emphasizing the economy talking about taxes, telling pro-lifers and people who care about moral issues they should calm down. Leaders in both parties continue to believe that it's just the economy, stupid, meaning money is all that matter and lives do not count. Politicians of both parties, plus even the Ross Perot crowd and those that don't like either one, have decided that moral issues can go to the end of the line. The neutron Congress gave us a contract with America, but it doesn't go far enough. Mr. President, I would like to take us briefly on a journey of the mind. Ezekiel said this, Woe to the leaders of Israel. Woe to the leaders of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not leaders take care of the flock? He actually said shepherds should not shepherds take care of the flock. Ladies and gentlemen of this body, I'm glad that it is not a big crowd today. I could have saved this speech for the thousands of pro-lifers that will be here Thursday. But as you can see, the stands here are pretty empty today. I am giving this speech for those of us who sit right here. Should we not as shepherds of the flock of Kentucky care enough to say something about more than money? Ezekiel said, speak for the helpless. I would take you on a short trip. No, I was in South India, number one, I was in South India a year ago. The first stop is a village in this trip where female infanticide is taking place by thousands. Literally now, I am not exaggerating. I saw the villages. I was there in February of 95. Millions uh, every year of little baby girls in India are murdered just after their birth. In India, the culture decided only boys are good enough to be born. As we passed through a village in February, we saw no girls on the street, only several little boys. And when we went to the village school, there were 42 boys and 12 girls. And I innocently asked one of the locals, where are all the little girls? The answer was simple. Why, we kill the little girls. The little boy, the little girls are killed. They do not matter. But I want to take you on stop number two. This trip is in South Carolina. I thought about Union, South Carolina, and Susan Smith, 23 years old. She drove her two sons, Michael, age three, and Alex, 14 months, into a lake with the boys strapped in their car seats. She murdered her own children. I was on an airplane not long ago, and I was embarrassed to tell you I was reading People, which had this story. During the weekly meetings with her family in prison, she often echoes the incredulous reactions to the murders throughout the country. Her brother, Scotty, was quoting, saying, Why did I do it? Why did I do it? People had a picture of this same little Susan Smith that killed her little baby boys. Taken in 1973, two years old at the time. The picture was taken the same year that Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. That little girl, two-year-old girl became a mother, and she killed her two babies. Why? Why did I do it? Little baby boys killed And then in my mind, I left South India and Union, South Carolina, and I traveled to Washington, D.C. Two years ago, I quoted the same quote, trying not to give the same speech this year. But this one is too good to miss, because in Washington, D.C., I found Jesse Jackson. Believe it or not, and in 77, he said, What happens in the mind of a person in the moral fabric of a nation that accepts the aborting of the life of a baby without the pain of a conscience? What kind of person and what kind of society will we have 20 years hence if life can be taken so casually? 20 years, let me see. It has been 19 since Jesse Jackson said that, and look at us today. We're talking about guns. We're going to talk about guns, aren't we, all during this Kentucky session. We're going to talk about violence, aren't we, all during this Kentucky session. There's a slippery slope that we are on in the U.S., and it started in 73, and it continues today. I believe that there are little babies, including unborn ones, who are saying to us, Hey, have you forgotten us? I can just hear all the big shot senators and representatives say, oh, no, no, we haven't forgotten. As soon as we take care of taxes, as soon as we lower all the taxes and take care of the financial stuff, if we have time, we'll get to you. You are just not that important right now. Well, I'm here to declare on the floor of the Senate that I believe that God is seeking men and women who will speak for the helpless. And while we were in D.C., let me stay there for a moment because while we were meeting in 94 on February 3rd, a national prayer breakfast in D.C. occurred. Mother Teresa of Calcutta delivered the most startling and bold proclamation of truth to power that has ever been heard perhaps in the history of Washington, D.C. Before an audience of 3,000, this 83-year-old nun who is physically frail but spiritually powerful, delivered an address that most of you in this room have read and I know you have heard about. She said that America, once known for the generosities of the world, has become selfish. And she said that the greatest proof of that selfishness is abortions. She tied abortion to the growing violence and murder in the streets, and she said if we accept that a mother can kill even her own baby, how can we tell other people not to kill each other? Any country, any state that accepts it is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get whatever they want. As you might imagine, she got a standing ovation when she said these words, the only people in the room who did not stand were the President of the United States and his wife, the Vice President of the United States and his wife. They did not applaud, they did not stand, and then she delivered the most knockout punch that many people are very, very concerned about the children in India and Africa where quite a few die of hunger. Many people are concerned about the violence in this country. These concerns are good, said Teresa, but often these same people are not concerned with the millions who are killed by the deliberate decision of their own mothers. And this is what is the greatest destroyer of peace today. In the world today, abortion, which brings blindness to human people. I could say more on that. But let me take Mother Teresa back to Calcutta for just a moment. I mention this because I personally got to meet her in February of 95. I spent ten minutes with her, and in those ten minutes, perhaps the greatest of my life in some ways, when she found out I was a senator, she presumed that I truly must know the president. And would I please tell the president's wife that she would take the babies? Would you please tell the president and the president's wife that I would take all the babies.